it, it really is hard to put words to. We keep kind of getting different people to kind of share their perspective because it's not a study, it's, it's an experience. And uh, this is one of these things you can't just show up for. Living Hope, you guys are known for just showing up, okay? You just can't show up for this one. You actually have to sign up because we got to prepare for you. We have to have leaders ready for you and, and what you're going to walk through. So be sure and get signed up. And, and I know that we're praying for you and I'm, I'm super excited for you for what's going to happen over these 10 weeks in, in your lives. And if you don't get to do it this time, know that we're going to be doing it again uh, in the spring, Lord willing. So we're going to continue in our study. We're talking about how it is we get hope and we're doing a study of Moses. And so I want to real quick, I want to pray for y'all and then I want to, I want to pray for me. And so uh, let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, uh, Lord, we humbly ask that, that what we are not, you would make us. And what we have not, you would, would give us. And what we know not, you would teach us. And I would ask, Lord, now that, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O oh, my Lord and my rock. In Jesus' name, amen. So studying the life of Moses, what we see is a saint who was committed to, to walking and following the Lord. And in doing that, found that there were, there were different kinds of hope, different types of hope, if you will. And so we're differentiating between the types or kinds of hope that we experience as, as those who are walking faithfully with the Lord. And today we're going to talk about the fact that if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you, you can have confident hope, confident hope. Uh, years ago, uh, one of our members asked me to give a definition for hope, and it was kind of an off-the-cuff conversation. We had, we had uh, done a message that morning on hope, and it, it sort of was laughable to me that I could tell you what it meant in Hebrew, and I could tell you what it meant in Greek, and I, can, I could talk about all kinds of things around hope, but I couldn't just nail a definition down. So I prayed and asked the Lord to give me a working definition. And so here's what I, when I define hope, when I think of hope, here's what I'm talking about. Hope is the confident realization that good is occurring. It's a realization that good is occurring. Listen, I know, and like you know, the world is filled with darkness and pain and suffering. I get that. But our God has not abandoned us. And God is in this world, and he is at work. So there is good that is occurring. Look for it. Look for it. So hope is the confident realization that good is occurring and the, the confident expectation that good is going to come. We know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. And so our hope is confident. We know that God is at work in the world and he has called us to be a part of it. Everybody in this room is hardwired for hope. You got out of bed this morning because you have hope. You're going you're gonna to go wherever you're going to go this afternoon, wherever you're going to go tomorrow, wherever you're going to go this week, because you have a, a hope. Now, what I want you to really think about is, what, what is your hope in? Okay, what, what is that fuel for you? And understand that whatever the object of your faith is determines what your hope is. So if your faith is in your strength, if your faith is in your looks, if your faith is in your intelligence, if your faith is in your job, your kids doing well, you know, whatever that is for you. I mean, just think about it. Be honest for just a moment. What what are you placing your faith in to get you through? Your hope is only going to be as strong as the object of, of your faith. Those who are disciples of Jesus have an eternal hope, a living hope, because we have an eternal object, a living object, 
as the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. See, our hope is in the gospel. We know that God created all things to be in harmony, but we know that that God's design is no longer what we live in on this fallen planet. We know that sin has entered the world, and with it, brokenness. And that's why there's divorce. That's why there's conflict. That's why there's sickness and pain. We all know that. We all experience that. But do you know, and do we know, and do we hold to the fact that the gospel is true? What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It's the good news that God became one of us, lived a holy life, died for our sins, has been raised, and was returning again. That's the gospel. So if you will repent of, of, of your own self-ability or of trusting in any earthly, temporal, created thing and believe in what Jesus has done, there is a power that is in your life that is eternal. It, it never tires. And it is the It is the strength of your hope. The gospel is the power of God. Paul said this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Very clear about it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if Jesus Christ is the object of your faith, then your hope will always be a confident hope. It will always be a strong hope. Moses had a confident hope. Because the object of his faith was sure. And what we're going to learn today is is what it is we have to understand in order to have a confident hope. And to do this, we're going to, guys, we're we're going to be moving. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. We're going to cover eight chapters, and there's no way we're going to cover every detail. I'm going to give you a flyby. You're going to have to go and unpack a lot of this stuff. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, take it out and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one right in the pew rack in front of you or under your seat. Just grab it and use it. If you don't have a Bible, take it home. We'll replace it. Eli's going to come and read for us uh, the, the section that we're going to begin with, which is at the end. So go to, uh, uh, go to Exodus chapter 12, and he's going to read for us verses 12 and 13. Let's all stand together in honor of God's word. Again, this is, this is God speaking to Moses about what he's about to do to bring salvation to the people of Israel. All right, Eli, go for it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will ex- execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Amen. If you would be seated. Thank you, Eli. If life were easy, we would need faith. We would need hope. We could just show up and everything would just happen. But life is not easy. And I want to make sure you understand that if you become or if you are a disciple of Jesus, that doesn't mean that, that your life is going to be easy. No, it, it simply means that, that You are walking with the Lord, and you never have to go to battle alone. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your life is going to be easy, but what it does mean is your life is always going to be meaningful. God is always going to bring meaning to your pain. God is always going to bring meaning to your success and to the things you go through. God is always going to to bring meaning as he guides you through what he wants for you. 
I'm reading a couple of books by uh, Bob Goff, really enjoying them. And here's, here's something he said about our life. Uh, speaking of God, he said, he, God, knows that without risk we can't grow. God didn't promise us a safe life. Instead, he said he would give us a dangerous, courageous, and purposeful one if we'll take him at his word and stay engaged. Only those with confident faith will do that. Only those with confident hope who are trusting in Jesus Christ will be fueled to do what, what God has called us to do. Now, God is very gracious. He, he, he doesn't just throw us out there and say, okay, figure it out. No, no, no. He, he walks alongside us. Think about what he did with Moses. He said, Moses, here it is. He told him. Then he showed him. And then he, then he set him loose. It, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like teaching a kid to drive. How many of you have ever had to go through the horrifying experience of teaching a, a child how to drive a car? It's a, it's a horrible experience. Horrible. Because you, you know they don't know what they're doing. And, 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 and you, have, you have to let them go, right? And you show them, hey, guys, here's what you do. Okay, now look, this is what you do. And then you hand them the keys to the car, to the weapon, right? Now, what we have to do is we have to watch them pull out of the driveway, right? And watch them drive away. God does not do that. God goes with us. God can do what, what no parent, no earthly parent can do. He is with us. He, he goes with us. And he went with Moses. And what we have to do is, is to learn and to have this, this confidence that knows that God is with us. We can do God's will because we have this confident hope. Now, there's some things you got to understand that, that Moses had to learn. We need to learn. And, and I, I want to show it to you. So take your Bible and let's go back. Go back a few chapters. Go to Exodus 5. We're going to start there. And then we're going to work our way back there to, uh, to Exodus 12. Four things I want you to catch. The first one is this. Those with confident hope, they understand the reality of our battle. I don't think Moses and Aaron comprehended the reality of the battle they were in. I mean, I, I appreciate, I think I would have been just like them. I'm very naive. I'm one of these. It's like, well, okay, let's go. Let's do it, right? You know, here God had said, Aaron, Moses, you know, Moses is 80. Aaron is in his mid to late 80s, right? They're walking in to like the coolest place on the planet, which at the time, Egypt was the going deal, man. They were the center of the universe. That's where all the power and prestige were. So you can imagine, I just imagine them walking in, right? A, a stinky shepherd and a slave into the palace of Pharaoh. And I, I just picture them like a good, bunch of good old country boys walking in there just like, well, hey, Pharaoh, uh, God, God told us to come here and uh, you've been holding his people. So here's the deal. We're going to need them. <laughs> and so um, what we're going to do is we're going to leave and we're going to take that 1.2 million people and uh, we're just going to go. So uh, yeah, bye. <laughs> right? And, and you just, they're just like, yeah, this is where God said. I mean, here we go. And I think they were astonished. I think they were shocked. I think they were just like, it had to have been beside themselves when Pharaoh was like, who are you? Who, I, I don't know your God. But it seems to me that the Israelites have gotten lazy. So taskmasters, uh, middle management, 
Go tell the Israelites that obviously they've got too much time on their hands. So we expect the same amount of bricks, but we're not going to provide the straw. So go and get your own straw and provide the same bricks or we're going to beat you even more. Can you imagine how sad and frustrated and disappointed those two men walked out? I mean, not only do they hear no and feel like failures, they go back and they're the children of Israel going, hey, Moses, Aaron, thanks. Great job, jerks. Here, here's a, here's a stick. Why don't you beat me with it too? You said you were coming to rescue us, and now we've got more work. Now we're going to take more beatings. See, they had no idea what they were walking into. It reminds me when I started my sophomore year in, in college. I was taking Greek, and I just thought, I'm a smart guy. I'll show up to class, take some notes. Here we go. First day showed up, class of 40. Second day, class of 20. Ended up, class of three or four. And it... It was, it was a battle for me. I had to get up every morning at 5 a.m. and study till 7.30 on Monday, Wednesday, Friday for a one-hour Greek class at 8. On Tuesday, Thursday, I had to get up at 5 to study for two and a half hours for a one-hour and 15-minute Hebrew class. I was not prepared for that. When I signed up for that class, I had no idea what I was walking into. I think here was Moses and Aaron they didn't know what they were walking into. They had no idea that they were walking into a battle. The children of God, friends, we have to understand, we are hated. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a child of light. Uh, John 3.20, look what it, John 3.20 says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Friends, being a Christian doesn't mean that everything is just going to be easy for you. What it means is you're on God's team. And you are hated. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your mind. He wants to corrupt you in any way he can. He wants to defeat you. And we have to understand that, that God is calling us to engage in a battle. My sophomore year in high school, I was an outside linebacker and I was leading the state and Sachs had a ton of tackles and we were about to play a team called Hillsboro High School and they had some of you UT fans, bless your hearts. Um, they had, yeah, they had a guy who, his name was Mose Phillips. He went on to play for the University of Tennessee, bless his heart. <laughs> he outweighed me by 40 pounds, but he was the quarterback. All night long, he couldn't throw, but he sure could run. I would hit him at the line of scrimmage, and I would tackle him, but every single play, I tackled him and fell to my back. <laughs> Literally, every tackle, I was run over by a train of a man. And after every play, he found my face and helped himself up on it. Some of you feel that way in the midst of your battle. It's like, am I ever going to get the upper hand on what feels like an addiction? Am I ever going to get the upper hand in this thing called marriage? Am I ever going to be able to drive back the enemy? Or am I just every day just going to get hit and dropped and just find my way back onto my feet, off of my back, to stand up and go at it again? Maybe. Maybe. But here's some good news I want to remind you. The Lord is with you. 
And you're only going to get this one chance to fight for him. So fight for him with all that you are right now. I'm going to promise you something. A trillion years from now, and by the way, you will be existing a trillion years from now. You will either be in heaven with God or you will be in hell for your sin. But if you are in Jesus Christ, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, think about that. A trillion years from now, the battle you're facing right now is not going to seem nearly as big as it does to you right now. And what you're really going to care about is not what the battle was that you were facing, but how hard you fought. What you're going to want to know a trillion years from now is that you fought every day for the glory of God to accomplish his purpose. Right now, there's fall sports that are beginning. And I'm going to tell you what's happening. These coaches are pulling seniors aside. I've heard this pep talk many times. And here's what he's saying. Boys, girls, you're seniors. This is your last season to play. You'll never have this opportunity again. All it will be are memories of what you were willing to do. When you're done, you're going to want to know that you've given it all you had. Child of God, you are going to die. You're going to be admitted into heaven. And you're never going to get to fight for God another day. Because you will be in perfect peace. You will be in heaven with the Lord. There will be no more battles for you. All the battles for that, from that point on are done. You got right now to fight. And you need to be fighting in such a way that you receive the reward. The Apostle Paul, you want to be able to say what he said. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. <laughs> Amen. What you're going to want to hear, friends, the moment this life is over, is you're going to want him to look you in your eye and say, good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. And what you might be tempted to say is, Lord, I ended up on my back every day trounced by the opponent. And he's going to say, and that's right. And you kept getting up and you kept fighting. Friends, you got to fight and you got to understand that you're in a battle. And in a battle, there's going to be difficulties. And and understand that the victory is coming. And what's going to make the victory so sweet for, for so many of us? The greatest victory is the victory that was almost lost. You know, you think about, think about, some of you know this show, 30, uh, 30, 30, the, uh, the review, uh, ESPN's review. You know what they never show? They never show games where there was a blowout. They never do. It's always close games where someone came from behind for the victory. That's why Vanderbilt is never on that show. You know, some of you, you're fighting and you need to be fighting for your marriage. You need to be fighting for your children. You need to be fighting for your integrity. You need to be fighting for your future. You need to be fighting for what God has called you to do. And realize in those moments when it's teetering, it's in that moment when you got to get up and make the tackle again. And you got to understand this is your last chance. You get one life to do this. That's how I feel on most Sundays at every service is I know Lord, I'm not going to get the chance to preach at this 11 o'clock service on this day in August ever again. And so I want to bring it. Friends, you've got to bring that kind of mentality, realizing this is a battle. 
you got to come prepared to fight. And, and you got to trust in the right person. And you got to trust in the pr- person who's made the promises. So second, second thing to write down, those with confident hope understand the promise of our victory. So here's Moses and Aaron, and they're disappointed. And they're, they're hated now by the same people they were supposed to come and rescue. And so what does God do? Look what he says to them in, in chapter 6, verse 1. Nothing has changed. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. What is he saying? Plan hasn't changed, Moses. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. My promises stand. Never look to your circumstances. Always look to the promises of God's word. Your circumstances are going to change. God does not change. And he has promised victory. And we don't have time to unpack it, but I want you to look in verses 6 through 8 in Exodus chapter 6. There are seven I will statements. I want to challenge you today to go and find and circle all seven I will statements. What's God saying? I'm going to do it. Here's my promise. I will do it. But here's what we all know. A a person's promise is only as good as their character. Yesterday, uh, we were out, and I heard heard a little boy. He said, Mom, I promise. And I heard the mother say, Well, I sure won't hold my breath. (laughs) Here's what I knew in that moment. That woman did not trust that boy's character. Right? Didn't matter how much he promised, what he promised on, there was no trust there. Here's what we can know about God. We can trust his promise because of who he is. And what, what God does, look in verses 2 through 5. Before he makes these, these seven I will uh, statements, he first says, and by the way, here, this is who I am. Here's my character. Here's my goodness. Here's my authority. Here's my power. And here's what we can know. That, that we have the promise of victory because of who God is. You know, over the years, players like Joe Namath and Babe Ruth have been able to call the victory, have been able to call the shot. Here's what we know. People don't always have the character or power to provide what they promised. Our God does. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have promises that you can hold to. Last week, I gave you six promises. I want to flash these up again. Don't worry about writing them down. All of these are on uh, Instagram. They're on our Facebook. They're on, uh, they're on my site. These are the, we are sealed in grace by the Holy Spirit. He's working all things for good. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can take us out of his hand. He has a plan for our life. Real quick, the sixth one, we, uh, he will come again and take us home. These are promises you can hold to based on the character of God. Please hear me. The promises of God are not based upon your behavior, but that of Jesus Christ. That's why they're sure. You're not relying on whether or not you were good enough to deserve these promises. Let me go ahead and and spoiler alert the end of that story. You're not, neither am I. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it is by that grace that the promises of God are held and they are true. And that is what gives us our confident hope. Jesus has won the victory. Everything else comes with it. Third, those with confident hope understand the power of our deliverer. The power of our deliverer. So you look in chapters 7 through 11, okay? And, you know, you can kind of start kind of getting a little bored with this and thinking, why didn't God just say to save some space here? And he basically defeated all the idols. God is slow walking this victory. Ever seen somebody slow walk a victory? It's kind of a little slow walk the victory. 
That's what he's doing right here, okay? God is slow walking this victory. And what he's doing is he is showing that he is greater than anything or anyone we will ever face. If you are a child of God, this promise is for you. 1 John 4, 4. I love the address here. Little children, technia, the Greek word. You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know what this means? This means that everything that you're ever going to face is small to God. A sickness issue, a, a relational issue, a job issue, a friend issue, a class issue. It's small because God is greater and, and he has this power to deliver. And, and Moses and Aaron, they, they were there and they were doing battle, but notice what they were battling. They were battling the individual idols of Egypt. And so what you see happening in Exodus 7 through 11 is God's slow walk victory over every single idol of worship in Egypt as God defeated it in, in live, right there, in person. There was no way to deny that those idols had been defeated. M Moses was a great deliverer. Make no mistake about it. And, and it was all based upon the promises of God. And the reason for Exodus 7 through 11, go real quick to Exodus 7 and look at verses 4 and 5. Here's why God slow walked this victory, okay? Make sure you get the reason why he was doing this. He said, look, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by, my, uh, by, by, by acts, great acts of judgment. Then look at verse 5. Here it is. Why is he doing this? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God wanted to make sure there was no mistake who was the boss, who was the best. He, was, he, was, he wanted Egypt to know and thereby the children of Israel to know. And, and yes, Moses was a great deliverer, but not as great as Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3.3 3 says this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why is that? All right, I'm going to show you something in Exodus 7. And don't take notes on this. I've posted it on social media. You can take a picture if you want to. But let me show you the distinction, all right? Moses versus Jesus. Look in verse 1 of, of Exodus 7. It says there, Moses, God tells Moses, I'm going to make you like God. And Aaron will be like your prophet. What does the Bible say in the New Testament about Jesus? Jesus is God, John 8, 58. He's not like God. He is God. Moses defeated Egyptian idols. That's what chapter 7 through 11. Jesus defeated all idols. Colossians 2, 15. He has defeated all power of this planet. He has desolated them. He has overcome. He has wiped them out. Moses revealed the Lord Jesus is the Lord, Acts 10, 36. And the delivery that we have in Christ is eternal. It is by his stripes we are healed. It is the power of God over sin and death. That's what we celebrate. You know, at Easter, we always read 1 Corinthians 15. This is such a great promise, a great truth, rather. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What does this tell us? God has defeated through Jesus Christ, our greatest enemies, sin and death. 
and he will defeat everything else in between that you're ever going to come against. He is the victor. He has the power to deliver. The last thing those with confident hope understand is the wonder of our salvation. Turn over to Exodus 12, and let's go back to verse 13 that Eli read so well just a moment ago. And as I read this, I want you to think about what this says about Jesus Christ. How is this like Jesus Christ? This work of God and the Passover is a type. It is, a, it, is, it is pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What was going on here? After all these victories that God slow walked over the idols of Egypt, it's now time for the final plague. And I want you to picture what this must have been like as the children of God were huddled in homes. What were they doing? They're doing what we're doing this morning. They were encouraging one another. And they were worshiping God. And they were hoping in the power of the blood of the Lamb, remembering what God had promised. See, God created a memorial at this Passover meal. He said, here are the foods that you are to eat and you are to remind your children and you are to be encouraged as you recommit yourself to God every time you receive these elements. What, what was going on? The judgment of God was coming on Egypt and the only means of salvation, the only object of salvation was the blood of a lamb. A perfect lamb had to have been slain. And then over the doorframe, which represented the, the people of that house, blood had to cover it. Next to Exodus 12, verse 13, write Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. These people were celebrating the grace of God. And they had a meal to do it. Years later, the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, came and he created a meal. And we call it the Lord's Supper. It was at the same time that the Passover was being celebrated. So the Passover meal has become the Lord's Supper. And the way we receive it is very similar to the way they received it. They're able to, we're, they were able to, as we are able to gather together to encourage one another to worship God and to look to his word for the sustaining hope that we have with great confidence. This morning, we're going to remember Jesus. We're going to do it by receiving the Lord's Supper. Not everyone can receive this. If you look at the end of Exodus 12, there is a listing of the people that would not be allowed to receive the Passover meal. Not everyone can receive the Lord's Supper. Here's how you discern if you should receive it or not. Have you repented of your sin and believed on Jesus Christ for salvation? Believed on Christ alone. No matter your denomination, no matter what church you may belong to, if you have done that, 
then you need to receive these elements with us and celebrate Jesus. Right now, I'm going to ask the deacons, men, if you will please come and share the, the Lord's Supper with the church. As they do that, let's think through what, what happened that night with Jesus Christ. Remember, it was the Passover. The Jewish people were gathered in Jerusalem, and they were remembering the Paschal Lamb of the Passover. They were remembering that night when judgment passed through Egypt and all the firstborn in the land were killed unless there was the blood of the lamb that covered them. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, here's what we know. We know that we do not deserve God's forgiveness, but we've been given it by the blood of Jesus Christ. We know that we have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we know that, that this gift of eternal life has been given to us in Jesus Christ. This is what these elements symbolize. The wafer, and so you know, sometimes we get people that are confused. That's a two for one you're holding in your hand or about to get, all right? The bottom cup is the wafer, and the top is, the, is the, of course, the juice there. Sometimes we have people looking for like five minutes like, okay, Living Hope doesn't do the wafer. They've forgotten something here, right? It's there. It's there. The wafer represents the body of God. God left heaven, took on the form of man, became a man, born of a virgin, lived a holy life. He then laid that life down. It was broken, and his blood was shed. He died, as he said he would, and then, as he said he would, was raised on the third day. He is now at the right hand of God, and he is going to return to judge the living and dead, and he's going to make all things new, and every disciple of Jesus will reign with him forever and ever. This meal reminds us not only what Jesus has done, but friends, it's an appetizer to the messianic feast that is coming. We who are in Christ will one day feast with God in his heaven. And this is not only pointing back, it's also pointing forward. Now, just as the Israelite people had to be very, they had to be very careful about how they received that meal. So we too, as disciples of Jesus, must be very careful. 1 Corinthians 11 actually says that there are some who got sick and some who actually died because they received the Lord's Supper wrongly. I want to help us avoid that. So if you would, let's prepare. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes.